Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast, where the history is wacky, and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian and Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Someone light some sparklers because we're kicking off Season 2 with the Golden Age of Piracy. We are so excited to finally be back on the history scene with new episodes. Also, irony of ironies, we're starting the season hanging out on more ships. We didn't even realize we were starting off on the high seas again until we were in the middle of all our research. At least it's not going to be one enormous disaster, right? Before we get started, let's celebrate two anniversaries. On November 5th, Dear World Love History turned two, and we celebrated another year of Adrian, as if that was the only thing that mattered. It is. Yeah, okay. Also, it was Guy Fawkes Day in the UK. It was basically fate for a historian to be born on the 5th of November. So, if you have extra sparklers, light them for the podcast and Adrian's birthday. Huzzah! Speaking of, and it's totally not piratey, but since Renee mentioned Guy Fawkes Day, we recommend the miniseries Gunpowder on HBO. The end. Moving on to socials. Follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Facebook and Instagram at Outlandish Historians for updates and the like. We are more active on Twitter than the others, though. Yeah, as an FYI, I like to put up photos of my nom 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 creations when I get into my baking frenzies. You know, if you wanted a photo tease of delicious baked goods. Or delicious dinners that I cook, I'm just saying. That's true. And if you've got a moment to spare, rate the podcast and or leave a review for us. They go a long way and boost our spirits on really bad days. Speaking of which, huge shout out to Annette for her lovely review on iTunes. One of my favorite history podcasts. I just want more episodes faster. We hear you, Annette, and we promise, we promise we are working on it. We're hoping to start churning out episodes every two to three weeks in 2021. This episode features a promo for the Past Less Traveled podcast. The promo will be found at the end of the episode. As we hearken back to the days of yore and meet up with pirates, let me just say this. Pirates of the Caribbean, PG-13 as it may be, is still made by Disney. So they're Disney pirates. We're going to get right into the grit of piracy and the men and women who made it legendary. Beware, all ye who enter, because here there be some monsters. And these pirates are almost always R-rated. So let's set the scene. The Atlantic Ocean, water as far as the eye can see, blue, beautiful, open. The waves slap against the side of the ship as it cuts its way across the sea. Sometimes the weather is fair, other times it's pouring rain. If ships are unlucky enough, they get caught in a hurricane or tropical storm. On the other end of that are the doldrums. The ships are at the mercy of the winds. If there isn't any wind... The sails are nothing more than limp material, and the ships go nowhere until the wind picks back up again. Life on the ship isn't easy, not by a long shot. We begin our tale way back when, in the 1650s, the start of what became known as the Golden Age of Piracy. This Golden Age spanned about 75 years, ending in the late 1720s, with a lot of bloodshed and enough legends to feed the imagination for the next 300 years. Before we can dive into those legends and the people behind them, let's take a look at what makes a pirate a pirate. 
the pirates we're most familiar with and think of made their bones at the end of the Golden Age. We actually refer to those guys and gals as pirates. But there were other sea thieves on the scene before the likes of Blackbeard, Bartholomew Roberts, and Anne Bonny. We had buccaneers, privateers, corsairs, and finally, pirates. The buccaneers were active between 1650 and 1680. These dudes were usually Protestants from the nations of England, the Netherlands, and France, and could be found sailing the seas of the Caribbean and areas near South America. Their job was to literally annoy, attack, and steal from the Spanish, which is why the Caribbean was the best place to do it. There were quite a few colonies set up by Spain's growing empire in South America and the Caribbean islands, which were also known as the West Indies. And it was all on the up and up because they were usually given the job by the enemies of Spain, especially the English. The buccaneers were given letters of marque by England, which allowed them to attack the Spanish without consequences. Even if they didn't have letters of marque, the nations who benefited from buccaneers turned a blind eye because, one, money, money, money. Buccaneers? What buccaneers? When they raided and stole from the Spanish, they brought increased revenue to their nations or their nation's colonies. And two, power. Buccaneers allowed their nations to gain more power and a better foothold in the Caribbean by taking from the Spanish. Pirates of the Caribbean may not be the most historically accurate pirate movie out there, which probably comes as a huge shock to everyone, but they had one thing right, in name only. Tortuga. This island was a fan favorite for the Buccaneers. They're not so secret Batcave, if you will. Port Royal in Jamaica was another home base. They rested, they ate, they drank, they resupplied, and they sold their stolen goods. So, who was the most famous Buccaneer? You may have heard of him. Captain Henry Morgan. And yes, if you're thinking of Captain Morgan Rum, you'd be right. It's that Captain Henry Morgan. The Buccaneers even managed to form their own exclusive club, the Brethren of the Coast. This meant they'd sometimes get together and attack ships or ports together, like the 1671 raid on Panama City. It's always fun when you can get together with your friends for a wholesome activity like pillage and plunder. Next up are the privateers. These guys were 100% given the okay to attack enemies of their country. Letters of marque were issued to captains by their government, and off the privateers went, attacking and pillaging enemy ships at their leisure. The countries usually involved were England, surprise, France, Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands, which at this point was a republic. Privateers were usually merchant ships attacking other merchant ships. So the question arises, why privateers instead of the country's own navy? It was cheaper to allow merchant vessels to do the dirty work than to pay for more ships and men for their own navy. This also meant they had less to lose since they weren't funding the privateers. But it wasn't all fun and games. The privateer captains had to keep a log of everything they did and all the shit they stole. They couldn't keep a thing they took from the enemy ships like a pirate would. Once their government figured out how much their plunder was worth, then, and only then, the captain and crew could be paid. And, of course, a chunk of it went to the crown. At the end of the day, a privateer was really just a formally recognized pirate with permission. They couldn't be arrested and put on trial for piracy, most of the time, but what they did and how they did it falls under the umbrella of piracy. They were simply pirating on behalf of their country, so they got a fancy title to match. On to corsairs, who were usually Muslim sailors in the Mediterranean given the green light by their governments to attack ships belonging to Christian countries. And of course, because the Corsairs weren't European privateers, the Europeans saw them as pirates. And finally, the Pirates of the Golden Age, who are the focus of this two-part series. They were the bandits of the seas. They robbed, pillaged, and plundered anyone who wasn't flying a pirate flag. It didn't matter what country they came from or represented before their pirating days. 
All of those loyalties and ties were broken when they chose to become outlaws. The only flag that mattered was the black. And if you didn't fly a black flag, your ship was fair game. So who makes a pirate? Why did these guys become ocean outlaws? Because work sucked. Big time. No, really. The guys who became pirates were usually already sailors, either because they joined the Navy or a merchant ship and realized it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, or it was the only work available at the time, or, or, or worse, they were forced into service on board a Navy or merchant vessel. Being a sailor wasn't a glamorous job, or a relaxing one, or a fun one. It wasn't even a rewarding one, depending on the ship and captain. Those guys were stuck on a ship 24-7 with the same exact people for months on end in tiny quarters. Does that sound fun to you? There was no quiet time. Safe spaces didn't exist and self-care wasn't even a blip on the radar. Hope you kissed your family goodbye. Won't be seeing them for a while. If ever again. There were a lot of shit jobs a guy could get in the 1600s and 1700s, but this honestly had to be the worst. Sailors might end up working night or day or even both. The food could be downright disgusting. Diseases often ran rampant on a ship before the officers even knew what was happening. Food and water could last the entire journey, if they didn't spoil first. Rats were the uninvited VIPs who wandered the ship at will, and might even end up being the reason food and water went bad. If disease, hunger, or thirst didn't kill sailors, then a storm could wash them overboard. Or they could fall from rigging, or something could fall on top of them. Sounds like a blast, right? And if all of that wasn't enough reason to turn pirate, here's the icing on the cake. Punishments on naval and merchant ships were so, so extreme and so very much plenty. Men were constantly under the threat of a whip or a cane, which was used liberally. And sometimes food or water rations weren't giving. Another fun punishment to look forward to. But wait, but wait, there's more. The pay was complete and utter shit. That is, if the sailors got paid at all. They really knew how to motivate and retain their employees. Add all of this up, and you have the perfect recipe for a man reaching the limit of what he can stand. I don't know about you guys, but if everything sucked on top of physical assault by the officers, I'd also become a pirate. A lot of anger and resentment was festering on these ships, especially if they were already serving on said ships because a press gang forced them into it. Piracy, on the other hand, offered everything the Navy and merchant vessels didn't. Time to relax, goof off with their buddies, a share of the plunder, food and drink for all, their own form of workers' comp, Captains who were chosen by the crew and a real say in how the crew operated and which prizes were taken. And maybe they'd get to take their vengeance out on the officers or captains who treated them like garbage. Per Raiders and Rebels by Frank Sherry, Captain Bartholomew Roberts wrote this about piracy. In an honest service, there is thin rations, low wages, and hard labor. In this, plenty, pleasure and ease, liberty and power. And who would not balance creditor on this side, when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking? No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Because being a pirate could be a very short life, maybe shorter than that on a naval or a merchant ship, but to many it was worth it. Huge bonus for the pirates, their recruits already knew how to sail and do the work, which meant pirate ships could be just as skilled as the ships they were going after. However, not all pirates came from a sailor's background. Enslaved Africans who escaped or were freed from slave ships also joined pirate crews. According to the Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodward, escaped slaves could make up a quarter of a pirate crew, if not more. Piracy became an even more popular choice for sailors after the end of the War of Spanish Succession, which was fought at the same time as Queen Anne's War in the British colonies. The question is why? Well, both wars were taking place at the same time for about the same amount of time. 
The War of Spanish Succession lasted from 1701 until 1714, while Queen Anne's War was fought from 1702 to 1713. Let's break those two down really quick. The War of Spanish Succession was a showdown between the British, which is how we'll refer to them from here on out since the Acts of Union were passed in 1707, which unified England and Scotland into the newly minted Great Britain. The Dutch Republic and the Holy Roman Empire versus France and Spain. Queen Anne's War was the second round between Great Britain and France and their Native American allies. The two sides were duking it out for more control over North America. The number of naval sailors skyrocketed during the wars on both sides of the Atlantic, and there were well over 1,000 privateers sailing the waters on behalf of their nations. Once the wars were over and the Treaty of Utrecht was signed in April 1713, a lot of sailors were out of work. Without a war to fight, the Navy started going back to their usual peacetime numbers. Over 30,000 men were given a thanks for serving, now get gone. That's a lot of men without work, and many of them in desperate need of money. And the privateers were just sitting around, with expired letters of Mark, wishing they had something better to do. Lack of work means lack of money, which equals a rise in piracy. The rise didn't happen right away, though. It did take a few years thanks to a rise in trade where some could find work aboard merchant vessels, but that didn't last long. The improvement to food pay and treatment that happened on ships during wartime went right back down again during peacetime. And this is the time period that some of the most famous pirates took the seas by storm. A fun phrase for turning pirate is going on or upon the account. The account, of course, was piracy. Prizes were the ships and plunder they took. Some of the men who went on the account mutinied and took over their ship as one big group. They were fed up with the bullshit treatment and food, and no, they weren't going to take it. Not anymore. This usually didn't end well for the captain or some of the officers. Then they created their flag, a.k.a. a Jolly Roger, and created their articles, which were basically their pirate contract for the ship and crew. Others deserted the first chance they got and signed up with pirate crew if they could. Or, the most popular option, they volunteered to join a crew when their ship was seized by pirates. Those guys were looking for a way out of their miserable situation, and the arrival of the pirates was the perfect gift. Some of them might even have wished for a pirate ship or two to come along and make their day. There were some men who were forced into service. As a general rule, though, pirates didn't like to make pirates of men who weren't willing. You know, loyalty and all that. But there were a few exceptions. The first was when it came to men with skills other than sailing, like coopers, guys who could repair the barrels that held food and drink, pretty important, and surgeons. If they were needed but didn't want to sign up for a pirate's life, then someone signed up for them. The second was towards the end of the Golden Age, when less and less men were willing and ready to join pirate crews. Less volunteers meant less men to crew a pirate ship. So, captains and their crews turned to forcing sailors to join up. Tisk tisk, that wasn't any better than the Navy and merchant ships. At least they left the married men alone for the most part. They saw marriage as too strong a bond, aka the forced pirate converts would be more likely to run away or ignore orders. I can't blame them. So how exactly did pirates restock their ships if they weren't welcome at most ports? They would raid ships and take their supplies. Another option was finding a well-hidden area near land and going ashore for provisions, food, water, and they'd hunt for food if there were animals nearby. And if those two failed, there was always option number three, pillaging villages and towns near the coast. You know, the same thing we do today if we're in need of thirst-quenching beverage. What all the pirate movies and TV shows almost never show you, except for the TV series Black Sails, was that all ships that sailed to the Caribbean had to be careened. Basically, the ship was beached and turned onto its side for cleaning. 
They had to get all the seaweed, gunk, and barnacles off and fix it up if needed. And they scraped off the shipworm, which was a parasite that ate through the wooden hull of the ship. Cleaning the ship and repairing any damage equaled a faster vessel. The very thing pirates needed to be pirates. It also kept the ship from sinking. Pretty important. You know, if you're looking to stay on top of the ocean instead of below it. You know that scene in the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie where the Brethren Court gathers and Keith Richard appears with the Pirates Code? Yeah, that was a thing, just not like that. Each ship had their own code, which were called articles, that the captain and crew had to agree to and swear to. But a lot of the articles were pretty similar to each other from ship to ship. They were the do's and don'ts of piracy, kind of like the Pirate Bill of Rights, that established the roles on board the ship and the tasks men were responsible for. When men became part of the crew, they were sworn in like a judge. Do you accept the articles and swear to uphold them? High fives all around, welcome to the crew. Here's the general gist of the articles, based on Bartholomew Roberts's. Everyone had a say and could vote when there was a vote taking place. Everyone got the same amount of food and drink, and yes, that included alcohol. No stealing from the crew or the offender would be marooned. Like Captain Jack Sparrow, they'd become the governor of their own island with some water, a pistol, and gunpowder. But if a guy only stole from another crew member, not from the collective plunder, then he wouldn't be left alone on an uninhabited island. He'd just have his ears and nose slit and would be left somewhere where his life wouldn't be a fun one. So much better. All weapons were to be kept spick and span. Running away or hiding during a battle resulted in marooning or death. No fighting on the ship. If two guys were getting into it, they'd basically have to duel it out on land with a pistol or a blade. Anyone who was injured was cared for, and if a hand or leg was lost, they'd get a payout. The articles also dictated how many shares of a prize each man got, and the captain and the quartermaster usually got two shares and the regular crew getting one. It was definitely much fairer than they'd get on a privateer vessel or elsewhere. Some... Not all of the articles drawn up by various crews did include an article about not raping women. Forcing a woman would be met with severe punishment on those ships, like that of Captain John Phillips in 1723. Weird as it is to say, the Pirates of the Golden Age were this strange little society onto themselves. There were a lot of things that tied pirates together, but nothing as recognizable as the black flags they flew. They were unified by common goals, symbols, behavior, pretty similar to the countries they came from. Whatever loyalty they had to their home nation was transferred. The only loyalty they had was to their own crews and other pirates. You might even find pirates from various countries on the same ship. Or, as we mentioned earlier, former slaves who ran away to gain their own freedom, or who were freed when pirates took a slave ship. Black pirates had the same rights and freedoms on a pirate ship as their white counterparts. An equal share, a vote, etc., they swore to the same articles, which meant they could also rise to the ranks to an officer position, and some of them did. Pirates had a really interesting way of saying hi to each other, out on the high seas. If two pirate ships were passing each other, one would ask something along the lines of, where are you coming from? And the other ship would say, from the sea. Boom. Confirmation that they were talking to pirate friends. Remember when we said part of the articles declared everyone had a say in a vote? Any and every decision that had to be made on the ship, unless they were in the middle of a battle, was voted on. If we're a Fortune 500 company, they'd all be members of the board and have a stake in the ship. Do we take a prize? Does that ship look good? Are we going to fight it out or sail on? Where should we sail to? Drop anchor here or somewhere else? And the question no captain wanted to hear. Do we keep our captain or vote in a new one? Because, oh yes, the captain, the quartermaster, and some of the officer positions they had on their ship were elected positions. Chosen based on their character. Piss off or betray the crew and you were out, out, out. 
And if the votes were too close when voting in a new captain, then the opposing sides might even split into two different crews and go on their merry way. Now, when it came to being in the middle of a fight, the captain had complete control. It was the only time the captain had complete control. Though there were some captains, like Bartholomew Roberts, that were given more leeway by their crew when it came to their position and power out of sheer respect. This was based on, yet again, their character, their bravery, intelligence, or because they were just a really great and competent captain. Absolutely none of the officers were allowed to wear any symbol that declared them officers and more important than any other member of the crew. No badges, no name tags, no distinctive buttons, no big hats with fancy feather plumes. All were equal in dress as well. Oh, and while the captain could choose a specific cabin as his own, his crew members could waltz in and out whenever the mood struck and help themselves to whatever was in there. Because the ship belonged to the crew. Part of the crew, part of the ship. Or however it went in the third Pirates movie. So, if you're living this outlaw life, but you've got all the freedom you never had but always wanted, would you give it up? Actually allowed to decide things and get your voice heard? Yeah. Most pirates didn't want to give it up either, regardless of the consequences if they were caught. Even though that consequence was usually a short drop and a sudden stop. No society would be complete without some form of law and justice, right? Well, the pirates covered that as well. Today, we're entitled to a trial by our peers. So too were the pirates. In public, so nothing shady could happen behind the scenes. And then they voted, as with everything else. But the trials were usually used for the really bad offenses. Not the small things, like, dude stole my rum while I went to go get a sandwich. A lot of the things that happened on a ship, and even on land, were dealt with by the quartermaster. If there was fighting on board, or if crew members weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, like drinking or goofing around instead of their jobs, for instance, the quartermaster got the pleasure of sorting it all out. He figured out how to fix it, or what the punishment would be. And he didn't need any votes for the small things, like dude stole my sandwich while I went to get some rum. All of this was decided on ship-by-ship, crew-by-crew basis, and some punishments, like whipping, required the approval of the crew. Carry a candle with an open flame? Big no-no on most ships. Doing that could set the entire ship on fire. And murder was always met with punishment, usually execution. Kill someone on board and the murderer went overboard, tied to the murder victim. That one was borrowed from the British Royal Navy. Speaking of quartermasters... These were the guys who were literally one step below the captain. They were kind of the bridge between captain and crew. Heck, they might even have as much power as the captain when there wasn't any fighting going on. Quartermasters were also elected based on their character and abilities as a sailor. You could even argue that the quartermaster had more of a say than the captain in the day-to-day operations of the ship. He was in charge of the ship's helm, aka the wheel, during the battle and led the vanguard onto the ships they were attacking. The quartermaster chose the loot they'd take from the ship they raided in addition to the usual treasures and kept track of it all in a log. He also made sure the shit they took was split up correctly amongst the crew. Other positions within the crew might be elected or chosen by the quartermaster or the captain if they fit the bill. The sailing master was in charge of navigation and making sure the sails stayed in tip-top shape. The boatswain, or bosun, made sure everything was spick and span when it came to the ship as a whole, repairs and keeping the ship stocked with food and drink. Then, there was the gunner, who kept everything in order with the cannons. A few other positions included the carpenter, sailmaker, and the surgeon. But don't think the surgeon was anything like the surgeons today. They were limited in what they could do based on supplies, medical knowledge, and each crew member's situation. Surgeons didn't know how to properly treat most diseases, and getting an arm or a leg hacked off was always a viable solution for some medical situations. You only need one of each, right? 
Even better, might not be the surgeon who does the surgery, but the ship's carpenter. Guess if you can saw some wood, you can saw a limb off too. And last, but certainly not least, pirate ships had musicians on board, and who wouldn't want a jaunty tune while out on the open sea? Certainly not the pirates. They loved their freedom, and part of that freedom meant relaxing and enjoying their free time. If they weren't on duty, they could basically do whatever the fuck they wanted as long as they didn't harm anyone or set the ship on fire. Smoke with a covered pipe, sleep where they wanted if they weren't in the way, wander around, drink, or shoot the ship with their buddies. A good crew was a happy crew. When we think of pirates, several things come to mind. Captain Jack Sparrow, all hands on deck, treasure maps, chest full of gold, and of course, the telltale sign a pirate ship was on the hunt. A black flag with a skull and crossbones. But what if we said that wasn't always a thing? We mentioned earlier that the golden age of piracy spanned from the 1650s to 1720s. The skull and crossbones didn't make it on the scene until 1700 when the French pirate Emmanuel Wynne raised the black. Before that, pirates used two different flags, a red one and a black one. No symbols, just solid colors. The red flag, sometimes referred to as the bloody flag, meant resist and there beat hell to pay. No, really. You were about to personally see what kind of accommodations Davy Jones had to offer. It meant no quarter, aka everybody's dead, dead, dead. There was no mercy to be given. You did not, I repeat, you did not want to be on the receiving end of that flag. Pirates usually flew the red when the prize they were after chose to fight instead of surrender right away. The black flag, on the other hand, meant you might just live another day. So really, if you're about to be boarded by pirates, don't make them angry enough to raise the red and declare no quarter. But by the end of the 17th century, solid-colored flags were becoming a thing of the past. As with all things, out with the old and in with the new. The good news, the captains could get creative and really make their flag as terrifying as possible because apparently being pursued by pirates wasn't scary enough. So no, all pirates weren't flying the same black flag with a skull and crossbones, which, P.S. by the way, was a symbol of death dating back to the Middle Ages. It was even used by captains who were making note of dead crew members in their logbooks, as in, it might be scribbled next to the name of sailors who died during the journey. What's really interesting is that a lot of the pirates used some of the same symbols. The skull slash death's heads slash a skeletal body, otherwise known as an anatomy, some form of a weapon, crossbones or bleeding hearts, and an hourglass. As per Under the Black Flag by David Cordingly, those three symbols equal death, violence, and limited time. So believe us, pirates had a vivid imagination. Blackbeard gave his flag a splash of color by accessorizing his skeleton with a bleeding heart. Christopher Condent basically created his own coat of arms with three skulls and crossbones in a row. And Jack Rackham, also known as Calico Jack, probably created one of the most famous and recognizable pirate flags in history a skull, and crossbones with two cutlasses crisscrossed underneath. As the Golden Age came closer to an end, the flag became known as the Jolly Roger. Funny thing is, no one really knows why. There are some theories, though. The first that it comes from the term Jolly Rouge. I'm very sorry to the French I literally just butchered. It's been a very long time. Since... <laughs> Shut up. It's been a long time since I took French. My apologies. Okay. Um... Duolingo. There's an app for that. Shut up! Okay. Which was what the red flag was called once upon a time. The second theory has to do with the devil. At the time, people referred to the devil as Old Roger, and somehow that transferred over to the flag, maybe as a parallel between pirates, hell, and the devil. And theory number three is that the skull on the flag looked so jolly, and so was born the Jolly Roger. Honestly, we really don't know where it comes from. Wish that we did. A pirate crew was only as good as their ship, 
It didn't matter if the best sailors in the history of sailors were on board if the ship wasn't up to the task. There was only so much the pirates could do, which is why pirates almost always chose ships based on how fast they could go instead of how big they were. Size isn't everything. The ships of choice were ones where the hull only needed a few feet of water in order to sail, which meant it was a much faster ship. Pirates needed vessels that could carry their entire crew and all their cannons, and they had a lot of cannons, without being weighed down like a schooner or a sloop. As long as the ship was decked out with everything the pirates needed, and trust us, if the ship needed some overhaul, pirates were not afraid of a fixer-upper, and the wind was in their favor, there'd be zero issues, except in one case. The only ship sailing the seas that could give the pirates a serious run for their treasure in battle was a man of war, aka a Royal Navy ship. Huge. Lots of cannons. Big. Equally scary. Yeah. But, provided they didn't go up against one of those, it would, quite literally, be smooth sailing. Merchants weren't the type of to go out, guns blazing, it wasn't their cargo, why risk their lives when they could just surrender? If they didn't, that meant the end was nigh. I don't know about you, but I'm with them. Take what you want, let me live, and we're square. And the pirates are more than okay with that. They were always ready for a fight, especially when there was a prize on the line. But, fighting also meant getting injured, losing arms and legs, and even death. If there was no other option, sure. They draw their cutlass and attack, but they definitely preferred the threat of a rumble more than the fight itself. Which is why speed was so important. Think about it. If the ship being pursued knew they couldn't get away, and that fighting meant dying, they'd be more likely to surrender from the start. But speed and the threat of violence weren't the only weapons in their arsenal. Pirates were also incredibly tricky bastards, and their level of deviousness is actually something to admire. If a pirate didn't want to be recognized as a pirate... They could sail incognito. Pirates had a nifty habit of stocking up on national flags. Was that a British ship in the distance? That's cool. They just fly the Union flag. Same goes for the French, the Spanish, and everyone else. Unfortunately for the hunted, that meant they wouldn't realize until it was way too late that their so-called fellow countrymen were the dread pirate Roberts in disguise. Here's how a potential hunt might go down. Pirates had nothing better to do when out on the open seas than keep an eye out for other ships. There was always someone hanging out high up on the mainmast, keeping an eagle eye on the horizon in every direction. Merchant ships, though, usually didn't have that luxury, so a lot of the time they didn't even realize they were being hunted until it was too late. As the pirates got closer to the merchant ships, they had to figure out if the ships in their crosshairs were worth taking. There was no way to tell for sure what a ship was carrying. It was a roll of the dice. But if the pirates decided that I... It was worth finding out, they'd go after their prize. It didn't happen like it does in the movies, though. It wasn't a few minutes of chasing the ship, and then boom, pirates for the win. No. The chase could last for days, while the pirates tried to get in the best position before using as many sails as they needed to catch the object of their desire. After that, it was just a matter of capture and the merchant ship's surrender. If a surrender was in the cards, and it usually was, the merchant captain would give the order to strike the colors a.k.a. to lower their flag. If the merchant captain refused to surrender, then things would take a dramatic turn. Nothing extreme like firing all the cannons and watching the ship sink below the water. More like a single cannon, the pirate's equivalent of a love tap. A we-mean-business-don't-test-us warning shot, if you will. Pirates didn't usually want to destroy the ship they spent so much time and energy chasing. If the ship was lost, so was the cargo. Doesn't make for very productive pirates, does it? It was easier, and significantly more in the pirates' favor, to fire a shot and maybe destroy the mast or sails in the ship itself. With that over and done with, the pirates checked the ship, took whatever cargo caught their eye, and made a quick getaway. Think of it like a murder scene. If you kill someone, you're not just going to stick around, right? Same with pirating. 
Get your shit and haul ass. Go and find a place to drop anchor and hide or just get as far away as possible. Up to this point, it kind of seems like pirates weren't too bad, right? Wrong. Part of the reason many merchants surrendered without a fight was because quite a few pirate captains wanted to be the biggest, baddest baddie on the high seas. Without doubt, the most terrifying captain the world had ever heard of. It was to ensure that ships they were chasing surrendered without even thinking about fighting. Because if they didn't, and they chose to fight instead, it really pissed the pirates off. If the merchants were lucky, the pirates would either let them live or just shoot them dead. Nice, quick, easy. No fuss. If they weren't lucky, they could end up like the poor merchant captain Sawbridge. Pirate captain Dirk Chivers had Sawbridge's lips sewn shut when Sawbridge had the audacity to tell the pirate what was what after the pirate captain burned Sawbridge's ship. Sawbridge did end up dying after the good captain set him back on land. Another dude had to drink all the rum. Sounds like a pirate's wet dream, but it really wasn't. The man had to keep drinking until he was so out of his mind, blackout drunk, that he fell overboard and drowned. If he didn't drown, I feel like he probably would have died of alcohol poisoning. Not sure which one's worse. When stories like that were shared far and wide, pirate legend and terror became a part of everyday sailing life. What are you going to do when you see the ship pursuing you raise the black? No, not call the Ghostbusters. You're going to do what they say, that's what. But, of course, there were always exceptions. Not everyone was ready to go down without a fight. And surprisingly enough, the pirates gave up and sailed off. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It was definitely out of the norm and probably shocked the hell out of everyone involved. So, props to those merchants. Now here's the thing. There are instances when the pirates completely destroyed whatever merchandise was on board. I, personally, don't get it. Complete waste of goods. But if the pirates had an issue with the merchant captain, they made it their business to destroy the cargo and maybe even the ship. The reason for that is very simple. Since most pirates were former sailors and many of them suffered under the hands of a really shitty punishment-happy captain, they wanted revenge. Here's a really interesting thing that pirates did when boarding a ship. Before even looking at all the shiny things, they might first ask the sailors if the merchant captain was a good guy or a bad guy. If he was good and treated them well, he got to live. If he was a shit captain, there were two possible outcomes. An epic beating, the likes of which no one would be jealous of, or death. This interesting exercise was called the distribution of justice. Oh, and if the pirates came across any old captain of theirs they hated more than the people hated the series finale of Game of Thrones, well, he almost never lived to see another day. That's awkward. (laughs) When the pirates weren't, well, pirating, they had to drop anchor somewhere they felt safe. Madagascar was such a place. It had something for everyone. It's always so nice when you find such a place. A magnificent view, quite a few harbors to stop at and complete some business at, both legal and illegal. Somewhere to beach a ship for maintenance and repairs and the worst of the lot. Slave ships might stop by every now and then and take on slaves. For those eager to venture off the beaten path, there were fruits and water aplenty all around the island, so no need to look too far when stocking up on supplies. One of the best parts about Madagascar being the place to be was that there weren't that many ships in the area at one time. So it was easier to arrive, run through the to-do list, and then leave before anyone knew they were there. And this was all possible because Madagascar was a free nation. None of the European powers had control over it, so the European navies had very little reason to hang around there. This made Madagascar a safe haven and the perfect place for pirates to call home, sweet home. There were several little pirate communities on the island where pirates who had supposedly left the looting life behind had settled down with their families. Sounds like a happy ending. Except when you consider that they may have subjugated the native peoples, as outsiders tend to do. 
There was one guy who was pretty much the king of Madagascar. His name was Adam Baldridge, a pirate from Scotland who showed up in 1691. He settled on a part of the island where he could do business with everyone. Why cut himself off from possible revenue when he could just have the best of both worlds? Hmm. And he very quickly became the go-to trader for the area. He set up successful trading relationships with legitimate merchants, the native peoples, and the pirates who stopped by to resupply. And while it wasn't his main enterprise, he did deal in slavery. Plus, American colonists were able to trade with Baldridge and get around the Navigation Acts, which regulated trade. And since people didn't like the government sticking their nose in their business, the only way to get a decent profit was to do it in Madagascar. Madagascar continued to grow until it was kind of like a pirate kingdom. I mean, almost, anyway. It was as close as they were going to get. The residents of Madagascar created their own sets of laws to keep order on the island, and from there, it kind of continued growing. It was a strange little cohesive society. Think musketeers, but with a shit ton more weapons and a case or two of scurvy. One for all and all for one. Kind of. Ish. Eventually, Madagascar faded into the rearview mirror. One day it was a pirate hotspot, the next day there was a new island on the rise. That doesn't mean Madagascar wasn't used anymore, just that by 1716, pirates were more likely to travel to New Providence, Bahamas, to the coastal city of Nassau. If Madagascar had started out as lawless, then in Nassau, laws were a foreign concept. Laws? Rules? What are those? Never heard of them. Aside from their own pirate rulebook, of course. It was a run-down place dedicated to pleasure, drinking, gambling, brawls, and all things mayhem. Not to gross anyone out, but how the people of Nassau could stomach being there is a fucking mystery. Apparently, it stank to high heaven. Think about all these smells mixing together. Food, rotten trash, body odor, and whatever else baking under the hot, hot sun. Supposedly, people could smell Nassau before they ever saw it. So that reminds me of Edinburgh when Flodden... Of course it does. Shut up. doesn't remind you of Edinburgh. (laughs) I don't know. Probably something. Um... So when Flodden Wall was still standing, um, and that was a wall that surrounded the entire perimeter of the city, Edinburgh was known as Old Reeky because the scent of excrement, rotting bodies, and coal smoke could be smelled from miles and miles away. Unfortunately for Nassau, they may have had the same stink, but they did not get an endearing name the way Edinburgh did. Old Reeky Nassau. Done. No. <laughs> taken find another one uh, oh well anyway so alexander spotswood the governor of virginia once said that nassau was the new madagascar and he was right in many ways the two pirate havens were very much alike but the pirates of nassau actually came up with a way to defend their home they had cannons and guys ready to use them at any given time come into our pirate lair hmm <clears throat> i don't think so the sense of piratey musketeerness continued in Nassau. Pirates were fans of one another, but not so much of everyone else. Sounds like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> the two musketeers. Well, that works. All right. And since Nassau was the perfect base of operations in the Caribbean, it gave pirates the ability to go hunting just about anywhere, stretching from the Caribbean to Central America to North America. By the way, I will constantly say Caribbean or Caribbean. I have no idea. I make no sense. Yeah, Renee likes to flip-flop, and by likes, I mean she accidentally does it because she never knows how to pronounce it. It's it's weird. Like, Pirates of the Caribbean. There. Done. It's Caribbean. If it's on its own, Caribbean. I don't know why. I'm weird. I accept it. Anyway, the oceans were theirs for the taking. Wherever they went, the Bahamas were close enough that pirates could hide out within the Bahamas or Nassau itself. 
All these pirates in New Providence, and the Caribbean in general, made for an interesting social dynamic. We mentioned earlier that free slaves made up about a quarter of many pirate crews. All these pirates in New Providence, and the Caribbean in general, made for an interesting social dynamic. We mentioned earlier that freed slaves made up about a quarter of many pirate crews. When news spread to the enslaved Africans working in the sugar fields, they started getting restless. More and more slaves escaped in the hopes of joining the pirates. Slavery was far worse than death. At least as a pirate, a free person, they had the right to choose who and what they fought for, and freedom was definitely worth fighting for. So pirates wouldn't have been able to keep doing what they were doing without help or support from someone. They could raid all the ships they wanted, but if no one was willing to take the plunder off their hands, then there would have been a shit ton of cargo holds filled with stuff that might as well have been set on fire. Luckily for our looting outlaws, the colonists very much wanted all the goodies pirates had to offer. The colonists were also more than happy to welcome the pirates into their cities for however long they wanted, where they could spend lots of money. And boy, did they ever. According to Black Flag's Blue Waters by Eric J. Doling, in a time when male workers were earning 10 pounds per year... Female workers, five pounds, and a merchant ship captain earned somewhere around 70 pounds a year. Pirates were bringing 80,000 pounds into the colonies, specifically Boston, which was a pretty pirate-friendly place. That kind of money was no small thing. The more money the pirates spent, the better off the colonies were. Think of pirates as job creators, bringing good fortune to those who worked with them. Pirates would bring their silver to minters, who would then turn the silver into coins, and it didn't matter to either side that it was illegal. Not even a little. They cut out the middleman, ahem, the British, and everyone was wealthier for it, especially since there were sky-high duties to be paid on goods coming into the colonies. Better to just skip that altogether. If the pirates weren't bringing their silver to minters, then they brought it to silversmiths, who were able to melt it all down and refashion it into something else like utensils. Doing this also meant that there was some money left in the bank. If the pirate ever felt like they were in desperate need of money and fast, they could always have this silver melted down again and turned into coins. Basically like a savings account without the security. Aside from money, 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 pirates brought a wealth of other items with them into the colonies, like silk and sugar, among other things. Some merchants even started supplying pirates directly. So many exciting things were happening in the colonies due to the financial relationship with the pirates. But no worries, there was more than enough pirate booty to go around. Colonies like New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina loved their pirate friends. And through it all, there were more than a few governors who looked the other way or actively helped the pirates. They got to line their pockets with extra income since their wages were quite shitty for a government official, and the pirates got to sell their cargo. A mutually beneficial arrangement and even more so for the governor since some invested their supplementary income in future ventures. Pirates offered one more important service for the colonies, their strength. Let's be honest. Great Britain couldn't give a shit about the colonies. They saved their main military forces for themselves and left the colonists with the equivalent of a squirt gun. So the pirates offered their men to fight if they were needed. Even though it seemed like everyone was happy, they weren't. The ones with sour frowns on their faces were the British. The fact that the colonies had gone so far as to practically lay out the red carpet for the pirates made them break out into a cold sweat. In England, piracy was no joke. It was a death sentence, and the colonies should have been upholding the law and listening to Mother England. Apparently, for some silly reason, the English actually thought the colonists would arrest the pirates and send them back to England for their trials and public executions. That definitely wasn't going to happen, especially when the colonists almost never even put them on trial in a local court. However, not everyone in the colonies was gaga for pirates. William Penn, Pennsylvania's founder, shout out to 
all our fellow Pennsylvanians traveled from England to Philadelphia, arriving at the end of 1699. He was adamant that the governor of PA, Markham, was not a pirate lover. Nay, not his governor. In the end, he should have listened to all the people telling him that, yes, his governor. I bet Penn wished that was his only issue. It really wasn't. Pennsylvania was a huge fan of piracy. Think foam fingers and bazookas. I'm just picturing, like, a foam finger with number one pirate. Accurate. Yeah. Might as well have been. I mean, we still have pirates in Pennsylvania. The Pittsburgh Pirates. Baseball team. That's about as far as... uh, That's all the knowledge I have about baseball and teams outside of the Phillies. Adrian totally looked that up before recording. (laughs) I did. Well, I knew. No, no, no. Okay. I knew there was a something Pirates in Pennsylvania, and I thought it was the Pittsburgh Pirates because it sounded familiar because there's the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Pittsburgh Steelers. (gasps) They just really love Pirates. Okay. Their baseball team is the Pirates. Their, what is it, football team is the Steelers? Yeah, but that's not, that has nothing to do with stealing. That's S-T-E-E. I, shut up. <laughs> I understand that, but shut up. Steel foundries. Don't speak logic to me. <laughs> okay. So sorry, what was I thinking? All right. So for William Penn, this simply was not going to stand. Papa Penn was home, and it was time to get his house in order. He declared that all people in PA who held a colonial post in the government had to stand against pirates and go after them. No exceptions. He even managed to pass a law that proved he meant business. The Act Against Pirates and Sea Robbers. Very creative. And he had just enough gas left in the tank to fire his governor and become the head honcho himself. It wasn't just Penn shifting people around. England as a whole was making sure that all those in power that had any kind of inclination to support pirates were sacked and replaced. While they were at it, they decided to fix their little pirate problem another way. Remember how earlier we mentioned that the British law stated that pirates had to be sent back to England for their trials? Well, in January 1700, the king wanted the arrested pirates shipped back to England. Can't ignore the king, right? And so the pirates went to England, stood trial. Let's be honest, though, it was all a farce because there was only one way it was going to end. And then they all had a long drop and a sudden stop. Later on that year, Parliament passed a new law called the Act for the More Effectual Suppression of Piracy. They strenuously objected to piracy. It was basically a fancy new law that gave the colonies a new way to try pirates on home turf through the court of Oyer and Terminer. (gasps) Does that sound familiar? Because it should. The horror that was the Salem witch trials had established a court of Oyer and Terminer. The Oyer and Terminer courts established for pirates found a way to circumvent any sympathizers from sitting on a jury and letting the pirates walk free. Only men high up in the government were from a military background and highly valued merchants were allowed a commission. The inglorious end for the pirates shouldn't come as a shock. Death. And if that wasn't enough, this new act rewrote some definitions. A pirate was no longer just a pirate. Now the word would encompass a wide range of people like mutineers, sailors who surrendered to pirates instead of fighting back, and those who traded with or supplied pirates. Essentially, if you ever stood next to a pirate and didn't report them to the authorities, you were going to march up the steps to the gallows right along with them. To encourage people to turn the pirates in or fight back, the Crown offered a reward. Good news. You might get some money. Bad news. If you die, you get nothing. But, silver lining, your family can claim the money. The Crown was not joking around. They were now taking an active role in bringing piracy to an end and removing corrupt governors from power. There are a lot of misconceptions floating around about pirates, due in large part to books, movies, and TV series. The trouble then becomes separating fact from myth, like walking the plank, not a thing. 
Who has the time? Why waste a good piece of wood just so people can walk off the ship on it? It was much easier to kill a person than set up a dog and pony walk the plank show. As far as historians are aware, there is only one account of walking the plank, and it happened in 1829. The Dutch ship, holy shit, excuse me if I mispronounce this, Van Frederica, was taken by pirates. For unknown reasons, the pirates blindfolded the crew, chained cannonballs to their feet, and forced them to walk the plank. We haven't come across any other instances of walking the plank in our research, but there may be other unfortunates out there who were forced to walk the plank. We just don't know about it. Pirates preferred to use other methods of killing and torture, like woodling, which was when some rope was tied around a person's head and tightened until the person's eyes popped out. That's a fun one. That sounds like going to the spa. <laughs> so pleasurable. All right. So it is a complete and total lie that all ships carry chests full of gold. As we've mentioned a few times in this episode, that was a rare prize. The more common and still very much appreciated booty was silk, cotton, tobacco, and the like. Tangible items they could actually sell for profit. But the entertainment industry did get some things right. Those bandanas tied around their heads were a real thing, very likely to protect them from the sun and wick away sweat. And yes, pirates very likely walked around with all their weapons attached to their bodies like a personal armory. Lots and lots of weapons. They were always ready to fight and fight hard. Honestly, consider this. It was way more scary to come across someone who was covered in cutlasses and pistols like a weapons depot than some dude just wearing a bandana. But also, the reason for so many pistols was because it just made sense. If a pistol misfired, they just grabbed the next one. It also took too much time to reload. Either way, the pirates were covered. Also parrots! Yes, you heard that right. Though, no, it wasn't so that the crew could have a friend. Parrots were actually considered a decent gift if they wanted to pay off someone, like a colonial official. They were really low maintenance in comparison to other animals, like monkeys. Parrots were pretty-looking birds with the ability of speech. Who wouldn't want one of those? Remember, don't believe everything you read or everything you see on TV. Not everyone is Captain Hook or Long John Silver. Thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear Wild Love History Podcast. We will be back with part two of our two-part Golden Age of Piracy series on Saturday, December 5th. In part two, we'll be doing a meet and greet with the most famous pirates in history. Make sure you check out the show notes for images and some videos we scrounged up. Stay safe and be well, everyone. Historians out. What is going on, everybody? My name is Dan Romagno, and I'm the creator and host of the Past Less Traveled podcast. The Past Less Traveled podcast explores some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. Each episode is an information-packed journey into some of the lesser-known histories of the world. With episodes ranging from ancient Macedonia to John Adams' role in the Boston Massacre, you will surely find a topic that piques your interest. Each episode is 10 to 20 minutes long, so you can fit this podcast into any part of your day. You could find The Past Less Traveled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other platform you may use. You can also stay up to date with episode announcements and enjoy more history content on my Instagram at The Past Less Traveled, all one word, and on Twitter at The Past Less Traveled. That's P A S T L E S S T R A V E L D. Tune in weekly to get your fill of some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. And remember, we are all trapped in history, and history is trapped in all of us.